Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm here with uh, Brian Riedel. Is Riedel how you say your name? Riedel. Riedel. Okay, Brian Riedel. Um, uh, Brian, can you introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. I am an economist and research fellow at the Manhattan Institute specializing in budget tax and economic policy. Okay, great. And that's, you know, that's uh, not always the sexiest topic in the world. Um, but sometimes what's sexy is what's not, not what's necessarily what's important. Um, you know, the budget stuff is sort of like, you know, the rise and fall of nations is often based on how they spend their money and, you know, whether they can borrow money and, uh, you know, the living standard and everything else with that. So this is an important issue. And I think you came uh, to my attention when you were sort of, I don't know, like we, we just stopped hearing about it. You know, we, we heard about like during the Tea Party, um, we would hear a lot about the budget. We'd hear about deficits. Um and like it just stopped, and I think a lot of people just assumed, oh, well, you, you know, whatever. Maybe they were, you know, people were, you know, were, were discredited. Maybe the budget didn't matter. Maybe we could just borrow forever. Who knows? People aren't talking about it anymore, so you know, it must not be that important. Uh, but you know, I came across your stuff, and then I started looking into it, and it looks, you know, looks like what you're saying is correct. Uh, that we're sort of headed to a very bad place. Um, uh, because of entitlement. So can you just sort of talk about like, you know, what's motivated your work and, you know, where we're going with all this? Yeah, I, I've been working on this issue since I arrived in Washington in 2001. Uh, I've done it at think tanks. I've done it working in the Senate. I've done it on presidential campaigns. And the concern I have, of course, is not that I'm not that deficits are always bad and we need to always balance the budget. That's not my view. I think some deficits are fine. I think modest deficits are fine. But the problem we face right now is we are about we are we are at the beginning of an iceberg that could sink us. And it is driven by 74 million retiring baby boomers, rising health care costs and rising interest rates. Just last year, the deficit just doubled to two trillion dollars in one year during peacetime. It's going to go to about three trillion in a decade. And if I can throw some scary numbers at you, over the next 30 years, Social Security and Medicare face a cash shortfall of $116 trillion. Two programs face a shortfall of $116 trillion. And what it ultimately means is that, first, we we could face a debt crisis, but the result is it's probably going to end with either drastic benefit cuts or a doubling of middle class taxes, and that's what I'm trying to avoid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other option is we could just borrow forever. I know that the Social Security and Medicare, you're not supposed to do that, but they could change that law, couldn't they? Well, sure, sure. Um, the problem, of course, is the economy may not let us borrow a hundred and hundred and sixteen trillion dollars over thirty years. There's a question of who's going to lend us a hundred and sixteen trillion, uh-huh. at least at reasonable interest rates. Um, China and Japan only hold one trillion dollars of our debt each, and they're getting rid of it. The Federal Reserve mm-hmm. holds five trillion; they're trying to get rid of it. Are we going to be able to borrow a hundred trillion dollars from domestic lenders without interest rates rising? And if interest rates do rise, Every point interest rates rise adds $30 trillion over 30 years in costs. So even the, the argument that, well, we can just keep borrowing forever, the financial markets can't keep lending us money. At a certain point, 
they're going to be tapped out. And that's when the debt crisis would hit. Yeah. And I think anyone who's looked at sort of mortgage rates and played around with them knows how like a change in interest rate. I mean, people, anybody who's bought a house in the last few years knows that the difference between three and 7%, my God, you're paying twice as much sometimes in the, in the mortgage. It's, it's, it's crazy. Um, compound interest. So yeah, I mean, people understand that. You say the Federal Reserve uh, buys our debt. How does uh, the Federal Reserve is the government, right? How, how does that work? Exactly? The Federal Reserve is the central bank. They set interest rates. Uh, they also, one of the ways in which they conduct monetary policy is they will buy some treasury bonds. They don't buy them directly from the treasury, uh, but they will buy treasury bonds from people and give them money for the treasury bonds. And that's one of the ways in which they increase the money supply and they try to inflate the economies a little bit is they basically print money and then give it to people in return for treasury bonds. The problem is if you do that too much, it's inflation. And so the mm. Federal Reserve holds, they've pushed up their portfolio to $5 trillion in treasury bonds. It used to be about $1 trillion, but they want to pull it back down. Uh, uh, they don't want to keep going because, again, it's basically funded by creating money. And if you keep monetizing, that's when people talk about the Federal Reserve run the printing press to pay off the debt. That's how they would do it. They would buy all the existing bonds and pay for it with new money. So I borrow money from the uh, from the U.S. and the Federal Reserve buys my bond. Is, it, is that how yes. it works? Yes. And they, they, they print new money or they, they don't literally print the money, but they create new money on a computer and they will give you $100 for your $100 bond. And now the money supply has expanded by $100. So something's going to have to give here. Um yeah, and these, you know, these see the when you lay out the options in your reports, I mean, they they seem pretty uh, impossible. They, I mean, every option seems impossible. It's sort of like, uh, yeah, you know, it's sort of like, um, I don't know, like there's sort of an election sometimes, and you can't imagine either of the guys winning, but one <laughs> of them is going to win just because you know by necessity. Um, it's like that. It's like that here, right? So it's either so there's no there's no. I mean, first of all, there's no free lunch, right? Or there's no free, free well, not free lunch, but just like uh, palatable lunch. There's no like. Taxing the rich. There's no cutting foreign aid or cutting defense, right? None of that works, right? So, talk about sort of what are the options? Yeah, in fact, I mean, that's why we don't make any progress on this issue because, and when I talk to people, everyone has their easy solution. Oh, just tax the rich, just cut foreign aid, just get rid of immigration or add immigration. You could do all of those. It wouldn't come close. Basically, you have a $116 trillion cash shortfall in Social Security. You can't tax the rich by $116 trillion. That You'd need about tax rates of about 500%. Um, even if you zeroed out foreign aid, you zeroed out defense, you tax the rich 100%, none of it comes close. Ultimately, the only three things that can produce the lion's share of the savings is some combination of Reforming Social Security, i.e. raising revenues or cutting benefits or raising the age, healthcare reform, Medicare reform, you know, or raising middle class taxes. And that's not to say we shouldn't do other things. I'm not saying we can't cut foreign aid. We absolutely, if we raise taxes, should include taxing the rich. Defense spending absolutely should be on the table. But the point is, that stuff is so small Really, all the tax money is in the middle class and all the spending uh, uh, space is in Social Security and Medicare. 
Of course, neither Republicans nor Democrats are willing to touch any of those for obvious political reasons. And that's why the problem never gets solved. Yeah. And when you sort of – when you talk to people in D.C. – I mean you say everyone has their explanation. I mean these sound like people who are not very uh, you know, numerate, right? So yeah. people have this explanation like cut for aid. But when you talk to sort of – well, I mean is everyone enumerate in Washington or, or like what, what, what about when you talk to serious people? What do they say? When I talk to serious people – and I, I talk to members of Congress every day. I talk to senators. I talk to their staff. I talk to House members. What they all say is we know the numbers. We know what we need to do. There is no way in hell we're going to do it. Um, the politics are too ugly. Forget it. And then, and that's that's one of the things that really frustrates me, especially when I worked in the Senate for six years, is they all knew this. And they all just said, I am not going to take the risk. It's the same thing, too. You know, we have a lot of um, I have worked directly and personally with several of the of the Republican presidential candidates. I've briefed them. I've met with them. I've presented with them to, to them. And they all say, you're exactly right. We are going to have a huge debt crisis. Hopefully, I won't be in office when it happens. Hmm. How do they, I mean, how do they, how do they live with themselves? I mean, why, why do they do this then? I, like, I, I'm, I'm surprised they don't, they just admit this. Yeah, like, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's infuriating. They, say, they throw their hands up and say, my job is not to fix problems. My job is to win elections. And if I talk about this, I can't be elected. And so what they say is, look, I'm just going to have to work on other issues as president. I can't work on this. So I'm just going to focus on the issues I can control and whatever happens, happens. And of course, you know, I try to give them political advice on this, which, you know, along the lines of anything you do has to be bipartisan because if one party tries to do it by themselves, they will get slaughtered. Anything has to be bipartisan. Everything has to be on the table. It ha- the pain has to be distributed fairly. You know, all of the ways in which to at least make it a little less partisan and painful. But they're just say, look, I can't fix this. So and then I, I watch the debates and they just say absurdities. You know, we're going to grow the economy at at seven percent per year and that'll fix it. Or I won't touch any of these programs. I mean, OK, then you you're you're leaving a debt crisis. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what's your, and it sounds like you're talking to Republicans. What's your sense of sort of where Democrats are, are, are you know, their people on their side are, are they, uh, you know, more serious, less serious? How are they sort of thinking about this? The Democrats I talk to are in two camps. The, the far, the far left progressives um, are still of the mind that if we just tax the rich, nationalize healthcare and cut defense, it'll pay for everything. And this is, I mean, mathematically absurd, but they not only think we can pay for it, they think we can pay for the whole progressive agenda by taxing the rich, cutting defense and Medicare for all. The more rational Democrats, I think, understand the problem and that everything is going to has to be on the table. But they're a little gun shy, too, because every one of them runs for Congress promising to never put entitlements on the table. And there's a little bit of an unfair argument that I hear, which is that Democrats are willing to put everything on the table, but Republicans won't raise taxes. That's not true. I worked on some of the negotiations in Congress. I worked on the Super Committee in 2011. I was involved with the Obama-Boehner negotiations. Obama wouldn't put entitlements on the table. It wasn't just, Hmm. oh, Republicans won't raise taxes. 
Obama wouldn't put Social Security and Medicare on the table, at least not in any meaningful way. So there is there's a problem on both sides. Republicans don't want to change. Republicans won't raise taxes and most Democrats won't touch benefits. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the uh, the Obama-Boehner area? Because I, re- I remember this. Um, I wasn't co- following it that closely, but I remember there was at least talks about, you know, long-term fiscal health of the country. So what's your sort of just uh, overview history of sort of what, yeah. what, what happened? During, during the, the debt limit negotiations, right after Republicans took the House in 2011, there was a debt limit coming up in August of 2011, and there was the big grand deal negotiations between Speaker Boehner and Barack Obama. And the narrative we hear today is Obama wanted a deficit deal, but Boehner wouldn't raise taxes. What actually happened, and Bob Woodward you know, wrote an entire book on this, I'm not making it up, uh, mm-hmm. uh, was that Boehner put $800 billion of taxes on the table. He said, I, I'm willing to raise taxes $800 billion if you're willing mm-hmm. to put the entitlements on the table. And Obama at first said yes, um, and then came back and called Boehner and said, actually, I'm sorry, Obama asked for $800 billion in revenues. Uh-huh. Boehner said yes. Obama then, as soon as Boehner agreed, Obama said, actually, I'm revoking my offer. It has to be $1.6 trillion. Mm. And that's when Boehner walked away. And the narrative was Boehner won't raise taxes. No, it was... Obama asked for $800 billion, and when Boehner agreed, Obama revoked the offer. Uh, yeah. And so you can say maybe the $800 billion Boehner agreed to would not have actually passed the House. There's some dispute on whether the Republican House members actually would have passed the $800 billion. But the yeah. fact is, Obama asked for $800 billion in tax hikes in, terms of, in return for entitlement. Cunts and Boehner said yes, and Obama walked yeah. away anyway. Uh, and so that's how we ended up instead, entitlements and taxes were given up on, and instead we just ended up with the Budget Control Act, which was where they traded off defense cuts for non-defense cuts. Yeah, and so those $800 billion up to $1.6 trillion, uh, what, what would have been the structure of those taxes? That was still being determined. Uh, I think there would have been some increases on the upper rate. Some of it would have, a lot of it would have been closing tax loopholes. Some of it would have been new user fees. The details were still being worked out. Uh, they were still at the yeah. level where they were doing just the overall numbers. But yeah, Obama got his offer accepted and then revoked it. How did he come up with the number of 1.6 trillion? Was that was there some kind of anchoring there he, going on? He was under the impression that this gang of six in the Senate, this bipartisan gang of six, was negotiating their own deal, and that they were going to raise taxes by 1.6 trillion themselves. And Obama mm-hmm. thought to himself, "Well, why did I only ask for 800 billion when there's this bipartisan group in the Senate that already negotiated 1.6 trillion?" What he should have known at the time is that the $1.6 trillion rumor turned out to be false. There was no $1.6 trillion deal in the uh. Senate. It was totally false. It was a rumor, but the president didn't know that, and he didn't want to be asking less than them. And by the time they figured out that the Gang of Six deal was actually not not real, it was too late. And Obama and Boehner had already broken off the negotiations. 
Wait, so the president is that out of the loop? He's just sort of operating on in rumors about what the Senate is doing? That sounds wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, th- that's, that's what happened. And there was a book by Bob Woodward that I'm trying to find the name of it, but there is a book by Bob Woodward that details all of this. Um, uh, so yeah. I'm not, this isn't right wing propaganda. Yeah. Yeah, for the audience, I mean, uh, for the audience, uh, Brian is uh, just price, turning around, and that's why his mic is going in and out. He's looking for the price of politics. He's looking for the book. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. The the price the price of politics. Okay, great. Yeah, I will. Uh, I'll check that out. I'll look for the the de- uh, the de- the debt negotiation stuff. Yeah, is, is that are all presidents that out of the loop, or was that just Obama a reflection of his bad relationship with Congress? I think a lot of presidents are out of the loop. I think some would also argue that. President Obama was looking for an out that he asked for eight hundred billion dollars in tax hikes as the price for entitlement reform as a bluff, expecting Boehner to walk away. And when Boehner said, sure, we'll do it, Obama may have panicked a little bit and tried to get out of it. But, yeah, Mm. I mean, the Democrats, for all the talk of Republicans won't put taxes on the table, try finding Democrats who will do meaningful Social Security and health reform. It's pretty hard. Yeah, yeah, and is is that 2011 negotiations? Are those? Is that the last thing? There's anything uh, happened in Washington on this? Have there been any attempts? Since then? That was it. There really, other than the Fiscal Responsibility Act debt limit debate this year, there was essentially nothing for for the next 12 years. And now, I mean, the deficit dropped for a while just because the the 2010 and 2011 deficit was driven by the recession and the bailouts, and when that ended, it went back down. But it started rising again in 2015, not 2021, 2015, the deficit started rising again because the baby boomers were retiring. And then Mm. Trump went on a huge deficit spree to make it even bigger. And now Biden, worse, just to throw out two numbers, in Trump's four years, his tax cuts and spending hikes, just the legislation he signed had a net cost of 7.8 trillion over 10 years. That's that's mm-hmm. just the legislation. That's not like the overall economy. Just the legislation had a net cost of 7.8 trillion over 10 years. And then Biden came in and in his first 20 months signed 4.8 trillion dollars in 10-year costs in just 20 mm-hmm. months. So, mm-hmm. I mean, both presidents are just pouring gasoline on the fire. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, so we're going to we're sort of going to this place where, you know, there's going to be the, they're going to run out the tr- the funds for uh, Social Security in 2033. Is <laughs> yep. that right? And Medicare is Medicare. When is Medicare running out? Medicare is about 2031 for for Medicare Part A. Um, okay. And that's they're when across pro- the board cuts would, would occur. They're going to. Yeah. So they're going to they're going to come back to back. And so if nothing happens, then it just literally if you get a check for a thousand dollars, you'll get a check for seven hundred seventy or whatever. Right. Social Security benefits will be cut across the board. Twenty three percent in twenty thirty three. So when Biden says I will I'm against all changes to Social Security and Medicare systems and Trump says the same thing, what they are doing is they are endorsing an across the board. Twenty three percent cut in 10 years. How is um, how does Medicare how does Medicare work if you have a twenty three percent cut because you can't you're Medicare just is a little smaller Medicare is a little more complicated but I think it's less well known so I appreciate the chance to explain it Medicare has three main parts 
the hospital yeah. insurance, just, you know, when you go to clinics and hospitals, that's the part that's funded by a trust fund. That's the part where your payroll tax is supposedly saved for you. And when you retire, you get benefits. That's only the hospital insurance, Medicare Part A. Medicare Part B and D, which are physicians and drugs, are not social insurance. They're not pre-funded by the payroll tax. You don't pay into them when you're working. Those are just welfare. When you retire, Uh you just sign up for Medicare B and D and you pay 25% of the cost of your insurance plan and the taxpayers pay 75%. You didn't pre-fund that. You didn't pay into it. You didn't earn any benefit while you were working. That's a cent- Medicare Part B and D are basically just welfare programs where the taxpayers pay 75% of your health care when you retire. Yeah. And this is, this is sort of absurd, right? Because the, the elderly people in this country are the wealthiest, right? We're not helping the poorest demographic. We're helping the wealthiest demographic and they are the biggest beneficiaries of the welfare state. I mean, is it that, is it that crazy? The numbers are, are really something, you know, um, senior citizens are the wealthiest age group at the wealthiest time in the wealthiest country in world history. Uh, yeah. Seniors, even after retirement, still out earn the workers paying the taxes. If you go wow. back a couple decades, the median senior income has grown three times faster than the median worker income. <laughs> so you have, uh, I believe, about five or six million by now, it was four million a couple of years ago, five or six million seniors who have net worth over a million, even if you exclude their home equity, like just are sitting on savings and investments in the millions. And yet we are paying huge social security and Medicare subsidies. So there's this view of, oh, you know, these are just poor struggling seniors who, you know, are going to be destitute. And there's some of those, absolutely. And no one's trying to cut them. But most Social Security and Medicare benefits go to seniors who are even in retirement out earning the people paying the taxes. You are redistributing income up, not down. You have to the way you have to you have to stop working to get Social Security. Is that right? Uh, Yes. Yes. For the most part. Yes. And so these are these seniors, even after they're stopped working, they have so much passive income, so much investment income. That there's a lot of them, they're still earning hundreds of thousands a year, even after they're no longer are actively working and they're collecting huge social security and Medicare benefits. By the way, the average senior retiring today will get back Medicare benefits triple what they paid into the system. And that's even after you account for inflation, present value, everything, they get back triple what they pay in. Yeah. That's yeah, that's this is this is just wild. And this I is mean, why and this is how Medicare ends up seventy-eight trillion dollars in deficit for the next thirty years. Yeah, yeah. So uh, is there is there an argument maybe that just like going to the cliff and like what if you're what if I'm a fiscal conservative and I say, okay, let's just do nothing and then we'll get our cuts. I think that's one thing that could happen. Here's what I think what would truly happen, and I think it's pretty ugly for fiscal conservatives. Right now, Social Security and Medicare are already in deficit. They are adding to the budget deficit every year. 
We borrow every year to make up their deficits. The people who say Social Security and Medicare don't add to the deficit are wrong. Yeah. They're contributing. And we have. Five, and we have. Uh, we they're have contributing like five hundred billion surplus. to the deficit this year. So, yeah, yeah. What's going to happen when we get to twenty thirty three? is they're going to say, you know what? These programs have already been in deficit. We've already been borrowing. We're, let's just keep borrowing. And people, they're yeah. going to say, we're just going to forget it. We'll just keep borrowing like we were before. I don't. They will not allow benefits to fall 23%. The other danger for conservatives here is for those, the longer we wait to reform, the more tax heavy the solution is going to be. Because... When we talk about things like raising the eligibility age or trimming benefits for rich seniors or, you know, bringing more choice to health care, you can't do that when all the baby boomers are 80. Raising the age isn't going to help when the baby boomers are 80. We're not going to touch benefits when the baby boomers are 80. It's too late. You have to phase in the reforms as soon as possible. If you wait till the baby boomers are all 80, the only thing that's going to be left to do is raise taxes. And frankly, Democrats know that. And a lot of the savvier Democrats are just waiting Republicans out, knowing you wait 10 or 15 years, the solution is going to be 100% on the tax side. And it's not just going to be taxes on the rich. It's going to be enormous middle class taxes. Is, is your uh, impression that there's Democrats who actually think like this, that they, their ideal society is one where rich 80 – like we, we tax the middle class to death in order to give rich 80-year-olds all their money? Is that really what they – is that what they want? <laughs> so, some I have talked to, I, they wouldn't frame it that way, but they would say benefits are sacrosanct and we will tax what we need to tax to get there. And of course, you know, there's the we're going to tax the rich as much as we can. But realistically, again, if you run the numbers, you can't come close. There's just a view of the benefits are sacrosanct and we'll make the revenues work however we want. Um, but you would have to pretty much double middle class taxes over the long term if you don't touch benefits. Yeah, I think that the, the best strategy might be just not to be president in 2031. <laughs> I think the Trump should, they should elect Trump. That will guarantee or make a Democrat president very likely in 2028. <laughs> and you just, you know, you take over the next time. You let the, you let the economy <laughs> while they're in charge. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. The political economy here of how this sort of plays out is, is fascinating, right? I mean, you know, it's gonna, you know, crisis sort of forces people's hands. Um, yeah. And so how much can we, you know, you, you, you've written in your reports on this, how much just like, you know, uh, means testing uh, Social Security and Medicare, you know, 100,000 or 200,000 a year or whatever. Uh, how much, how much, how far would that go alone? Well, the first thing to say on Social Security is everyone says just raise the cap. If you just apply Social Security taxes to all wages instead of stopping at 170,000, Social Security is fixed. That's not true. You only close half the shortfall and you use up every tax on the rich on income on income and wage taxes. You have nothing left for any progressive benefits or anything on health care. And you only close half the gap. So I think on Social Security, raising the age, the retirement age right now is 67. If you raise it to 69 over 10 or 15 years and you start to trim benefits, you change the way the formulas are done gradually. Um, and, you know, my my big idea is if you earn over $100,000 in retirement for a single or $200,000 for a couple, you don't get a COLA for that year. 
So any year that you're retired, if you're if this is a couple making two hundred thousand, we're not going to inflation adjust your benefit next year. You do those three things, you can close about ninety percent of the gap with and, and and you preserve your tax powder for healthcare reform and you know perhaps other progressive priorities that the left wants. You don't use them up all on social security because when people say social security is where all the taxing the rich should go. I always find that interesting that of all the places to spend your tax, the rich revenues, rich baby boomers. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. One thing you said, you said that the, you, uh, if you raise the, um, uh, the payroll uh, limit, um, that this, you wouldn't have uh, taxes for, you wouldn't have taxes for anything else. Would, would that be an addition to the income? Would it just be, would it be an addition to what people pay at the higher ends and in income tax? It would just be. A, a, yeah, yeah. Well, well, the way it is right now, and I did a huge report on this about a couple of months ago called the limits of taxing the rich. Um, right now, the top marginal tax rate for the rich is about 50% in America. And that's if you add up the 37% income tax, the payroll tax, the state taxes, state income taxes, which go up to about 13%. The top marginal rate on the rich is about 50%. Well, economists say that the revenue maximizing rate is probably about 60 or 62% uh, on the rich. Well, if you're going to apply the 12.4% payroll tax to the rich, you've just raised their marginal rate from 50 to 62%, which is about as high yeah. as you can go before you start to, before revenues max out. Once you've done that, you can't raise tax rates on the rich anymore, whether it's payroll or income tax rates, you're done. Anything else is not going to raise revenue. The only way yeah. to get money from the rich at that point are things like, you know, trying to get it through capital gains where we're already at revenue maximizing levels or trying to close some loopholes, which are all fine, but that's not where the most of the money is. And so, again, it comes down to if you can only raise tax rates on the rich by 10 or 12 percent, whether it's wage or, or, or payroll or income, really rich boomers? That's that's, that's where you want to go with it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, is this just – I, mean, I mean, is the left just – is there just a lack of serious? Is it they're just going like this heuristic? Okay, um, benefits are good. The welfare state is good. Anything that is the welfare state, any benefit anyone receives must be protected. And I don't want to think too hard, you know, about anything else. Is that sort of your sense of how they're operating? Yes. And some of the proof of that is if you try to get people on the left to actually map out. The th- a 30 year budget, like show me how you're going to keep us from going into debt. Show me what benefits are going to be and show me what taxes you're going to raise. You cannot find groups or, or, or lawmakers on the left who will ever try to make the numbers add up because they can't. There is no budget. Yeah. There is no blueprint. There's no, if we, you know, if we raise this tax and do this policy and cut defense, the numbers will work. There is none. And, you know, you have people like Bernie Sanders who say their numbers add up, but they don't. You know, Bernie ran for president promising $97 trillion in new spending over 10 years with $20 yeah. trillion in taxes. <laughs> so, I mean, even, you know, they all say, oh, I'm going to tax the rich. But, but you will never see them actually put out numbers backing it up because the numbers never work. Yeah. And so, I mean, who is like – so there, there must be like – wonks there must be people like you 
um, who, uh, you know, you must have an equivalent on the left, right? Or are they just, do they think the same things you think because there's only one way to look at the budget? Um, The ones who do look at it on the left, uh, Jason Furman, Larry Summers, Mm. when they put out blueprints, often they kind of, they end up closer to the right than the left when they are actually forced to put pen to paper. The the serious liberal economists will openly say you have to fix, you have to fix social security and Medicare. There's no alternative. Uh, In terms of more progressive think tanks, you typically just, you won't see budget plans. Uh, I, I will say there are some like CAP and EPI put out budget plans every couple of years because we all do it together for this joint project by another think tank. But often they're not able to show any deficit reduction. They put out a budget plan and the budget plan shows deficits going way up. So yeah. you generally won't see a budget plan from the left, from the, the, the left left, not you know the, the, the moderate left, that makes the numbers add up because they can't. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like, you know, if you would just watch the media on uh, sort of fiscal issues, they, you hear that sort of, it's sort of the impression that you get is the right is these unserious people and the, you know, because they had tax cuts or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the left is, you're making it sound like the left is just, I mean, they're just out of their minds. There's just nothing sort of intellectual or re- realistic going on and like, the you know, putting aside, you know, individual exceptions like Larry Summers, just as institutionally, there's just nothing good happening there. I mean, I think much of the left sees budget as a political issue rather than a policy issue. This is an issue to beat up Republicans who want to take away senior benefits. This is a chance to talk about Medicare for all and protecting benefits. And the analysis just ends there. I don't mean to be partisan because I I can beat up the right too. I'm happy to beat up the right too on this issue. But it's it's hard on the left. You just don't even see engagement on these issues, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. And so like, yeah. And so, yeah, we could talk about the, I guess, the right too. So there's, you know, there's sort of this populist uh, swig on the right. You have um, Trump, right, who now says, you know, I will, I, you know, I was actually uh, sort of, uh, we say people are unserious. Un- I was, um, I watched a part of the last debate on uh, entitlements and, you know, I was sort of, uh, you know, they, I mean, maybe uh, maybe uh, my, my standards are, are, are low, but, you know, they actually did say, you know, cuts in some theoretical sense, right? Like Nikki Haley and Pence, you know, Christie, they have said like they would do cuts like, at, you know, at, at some point or in some way. And it's probably not but I mean, it's not what Trump does, which just says, you know, we're going to protect you 100% Social Security uh, and Medicare. How, how, you know, how do you see the sort of the right has uh, gone, you know, in the last five, 10 years? I was watching that debate and I almost pulled my hair out. Um, I mean, Nikki Haley was beat up as a conservative firebrand for saying that she would entertain some eligibility increase on Social Security starting in the 2050s. Well, the uh-huh. trust fund goes belly up in 2033. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tim Scott, DeSantis said, we will never touch Social Security or Medicare under any circumstance. Vivek said, we will not touch Social Security and Medicare. They gave lip service to waste, fraud, and abuse. In fact, on, on Ron DeSantis's economic plan, the only spending cut he points out is, quote, waste, fraud, and abuse. <laughs> That's it. Uh, Tim yeah. Scott and Vivek both said, we're just going to have the economy grow 5% a year. P- problem solved. Uh, I yeah. think the problem on the right is, on the one hand, you have 
a populist Trump side that is just as attached to Social Security and Medicare as the left. And I can tell you this because of when I when I write on uh, articles or on Twitter about Social Security and Medicare, I get beat up more from the right, the populist right, than the left. And the downside of the right is not only do they keep cutting taxes, which usually I would be happy to cut taxes, but not when you have a two to three trillion dollar deficit. Not only do they keep cutting taxes and claiming cutting taxes is going to raise revenue, which it's not. But when you ask for solutions on the budget, all you hear from the right is things like foreign aid, cut foreign aid. We're going to balance, cut welfare and cut foreign aid. And when when you see a lot of budget plans from the right, they're basically, well, if you just zero out the welfare state and zero out, you know, all social spending and you zero out foreign aid, well, I mean, that's absurd. And it kind of reminded me during the, de- the the budget debate earlier this year where Republicans said we're going to balance the budget in 10 years, which is completely impossible in general, but we're not going to touch Social Security, Medicare, defense, veterans, and interest. That's mm-hmm. 80% of the budget. Yeah. You could zero out every other program and it wouldn't balance the budget. And so the right yeah. isn't much more serious than the left. Yeah, yeah. So we're just going to head – we're just going to sort of head to this cliff – um, yeah. and then we're going to, and then something is going to happen. Um, yeah, I mean, I, sometimes I think that's sort of the, the, the job of a conservative or, you know, somebody who just wants fiscal sanity at this point is sort of, you know, maybe just, uh, like sort of accepting that we're going to go to this cliff and then say, okay, I'm going to shape the political environment where, you know, it's going to be, people are going to, you know, make the decision that I think is the least bad one. Right. Like, so in 2030, like our congressional Republicans, if they have to choose, if there's a gun to their head and they have to choose uh, entitlement cuts or tax hikes, right. I mean, should we just start preparing for the day when, assuming we think, you know, we want the right, we want, we don't want to become a, a social democratic uh, European state um, that, you know, that the anti-entitlement thing is just the, you know, the anti-tax thing outweighs the fealty to old people or whatever's going on. Is this sort of maybe a way to start thinking about it? Yes. I mean, I think, I think the first, I think the way it will play out is, you know, first, when we hit the trust fund, they're just going to say, we'll keep borrowing. We've been borrowing for the last 20 years to pay benefits. We're just going to keep borrowing. And so I don't think that 2033 is the real barrier as long as they keep borrowing, I think the real barrier is when the bond market taps out and says, we, we're not going to keep lending you three, four, five, six trillion a year. And at that point, they'll start with the low hanging fruit. They, they'll cut foreign aid, they'll tax the rich, and they'll quickly find that that's not enough. And, and once they've exhausted the taxing the rich, the cutting waste, fraud, abuse, the cutting foreign aid, then they're going to be left with, okay, all that's left are middle class taxes and social security and Medicare benefits. And as much as Republicans don't want to raise taxes, when you're left with 74 million baby boomers that are 80 years old, are you going to cut their benefits across the board 20-30%? Absolutely not. Not at that point. And so at that point, you're literally you're going to have to see taxes at that point. I don't know how else it ends. And when some people say, "Oh, what Doubling taxes or having a 30% value-added tax or doubling the payroll tax won't be that bad because that's kind of like Europe. Europe pays those kinds of taxes, but they get the benefits back for the families. They're not taxing at all for for their parents. Like it's one thing to tax workers to give them 
free free child free child care, free health care, free family leave, free paid vacation. But we're going to be doubling taxes to give it all to your rich parents. Yeah, I, I'm not sure about this sort of calculation that oh, you can't, um, you know, you can't cut the, you know, the 20 percent across the board to these 80 year old boomers. I mean, can you just double everybody in America's taxes? That also that also seems hard, right? It doesn't seem to be a foregone conclusion that cutting the benefits is the harder. Well, they'll do thing it gradually. Here, right? I mean, but I mean, they're going. I mean, just kind of like you know the story of the income tax. It started with a one percent income tax on the rich, and it grew gradually. I think it can start out with like a one percent value added tax, you know, which is like a national sales uh. tax. One percent, you won't even notice it. And then the next year, it's two percent. And then the Democrats have a good election year and it jumps to five percent. And then the Republicans bump it to six percent at a year end deal. And 15 years later, it's 20 percent. It's really hard to imagine the politics of Republicans agreeing to that right now. But the, the issue is, what else do they do in that situation where the bond market won't let us borrow? The fear that I have is that instead they will push the Federal Reserve to monetize it, that they will say, we cannot afford to do taxes. We are going to direct the Federal Reserve to run the printing press, basically, to pay this off. And that's just going to lead to inflation and delay the problem. But I'm worried that that step will be in there, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like one of the I mean, it seems like uh, cutting for wealthy seniors that seems more low hanging fruit than raising across the board for middle tech, middle middle uh, for the middle class, right? Yeah. So that would I, I think I would, I would hope, the- but even for that, it depends. One of the issues about cutting benefits is the savings start slow and grow over time. They need they, the savings build over time gradually, and so again, it's still hard to do that when when they're eighty and the deficit is four trillion because usually it's kind of you change a formula and the savings grow gradually. Unless you're going to do a literal seniors, we are cutting your benefits 30% immediately for rich seniors. That will probably be part of the debate at that point. I think it'll be a brutal part of the debate. I'm not sure it'll carry the day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems to the, the it seems the it doesn't seem like the rich seniors have much of a leg to stand. It's not their money at that point, right? Because they, they're capped, right? I mean, well, I mean, they're, they're ca- they, you know, they're, they're capped. They didn't pay that much. Um, and then they don't need it, right? And then of all those, you know, people, I think they're probably going to. I mean, the idea of the rich senior living off the government dole—that's not even part of our culture now. Like, that's not even like something people talk about. So, you know, I can imagine a sort of a, a reaction to that. Yeah, I mean, and it's against the idea of social insurance. I mean, the purpose of Social Security and the and Medicare is to prevent poverty in old age. And yeah. I would, you know, if it were up to me, if I were redesigning the system from scratch today. I would transition Social Security to a flat benefit. I would set it at 150% of the poverty rate. It's a flat benefit for every senior who meets the, the amount of work over their lifetime. Rich people don't get any more than that because the purpose is to keep people out of poverty as social insurance. There's yeah. really no need to to give huge subsidies to people making 300000 a year in retirement. And the plan that I put on Social Security and Medicare, most of my savings come from wealthy seniors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that would cover like uh, that would co- I, th- I might have even asked you this. I read this and I might have even asked you the question already. But how much would just uh, taxing wealthy se- seniors or stop giving them benefits? Uh, how much of the gap would it close? Uh, well, it depends on how much you're cutting. I mean, if you're just cutting them off or raising. I mean, it, it, it's 
for social security, you can get as much, you can close as much as probably half or two thirds of the gap from Mm. the richest 30% of seniors, depending on how aggressive you want to get on Medicare. It's less of the gap you can close because Medicare is tied up with growing healthcare costs. You have to fundamentally reform healthcare. I mean, the fact that providing the same benefits costs 6% more next year as it does last year, even if you're providing, you're just providing the same thing. But I mean, you can get a lot. When I, when I wrote my last budget plan in 2018, I wrote a 30 year fully scored budget plan. The bottom half of seniors weren't touched. In fact, their cost, their healthcare costs went down. I did it all through all to the top half of seniors, especially the richest 10 or 20%. And I hit them hard. But if you have to start somewhere, doesn't it make more sense to start with the richest than the poor? And I would rather, yeah. and in contrast to Democrats, I would rather cut the rich people's benefits than raise their taxes. Uh, you yeah, know, Raising yeah. their taxes has all sorts of economic ramifications. There's all sorts of equity and, and other people paying taxes today going to actually be around to get the benefits later. Trimming their benefits is much more pro-growth, simple, and direct than raising their taxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that yeah, that makes that makes that makes sense. Um, is there any other? Do you know anything about other countries? I mean, are there any countries that have a welfare state that sort of looks like this, where just everything gets funneled to seniors regardless of their wealth? I mean, it seems very unique. Europe, Europe used to, and they've they've reformed their systems. Uh, Canada yeah. had a mini debt crisis a couple dec- decades ago. They reined in social security. Sweden had a debt crisis in the 80s. They dramatically reigned in Social Security. France is still struggling. I mean, every time they talk about raising the retirement age, the whole country goes on strike. Uh, But countries like Germany, Sweden, Canada, they've all done a lot of the reforms that if you propose them in America, you'll be called a right-wing troglodyte. And it's funny because you're like, well, this is what Sweden did. (laughs) Like, this is what Switzerland did. Uh, they're more left wing than us, so yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it's fascinating. It seems to be like a rule of a law of political economy where you just end up like a gerontocracy and it drives you off the cliff. I mean, that's that's interesting. Did they all just sort of, you know, did they all they all just sort of it made sense when people died young and there was high birth rates and they just sort of you know is that just what happened? They all sort of adopted social security programs at around the same time. Yeah, I mean they, they adopted the programs at the same time. I mean they're kind of the ghost of America's future. I mean a lot of Europe, these countries faced soaring debt in the late '80s, and luckily for them, they didn't have as bad of a demographic problem as we have now. So it was a smaller, it was a smaller gap, but they made changes and they weren't popular at the time. But the government simply told them we're doing this and you know they were they were in a situation where they had to consolidate their 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 deficit a certain point by a certain date and they just did it but it, it's harder in America to do that part of the part of the problem in America is there's still this ethic a that seniors are all poor and b that you're just getting back what you paid in and c mm. that these programs can't run deficits and so all three of those are spectacularly wrong, but people have this moral take that you're robbing from me if you change benefits, even though, again, you're getting back triple what you paid in into Medicare, even adjusted for present value. Yeah. 
Yeah, this seems like a seems like an information problem, right? <laughs> I mean, it seems as people have false views, and you know, hopefully. You and when I try them. to correct the views, I learn all the new swear words. Yeah, I mean, I think Twitter is probably not the best. I mean, the, I you know, I've I, I know Twitter is not the best place for the most efficient. I mean, you'll become a misanthrope if you look at the Twitter comments too much. Um, yeah, I, I think that. Yeah, I think that like it's really unpredictable. It's sort of hard to game it out because you, you, when you, when the crisis hits, like, and people have to make it, so you're going to be testing different kind of messages. And like now, people could just say, "Okay, no, we don't like taxes, we don't like cuts," um, but like you know, something's got to give. And you know, maybe maybe we'll make good decisions <laughs> at that point. But I don't know. We should we should do it. We should do it earlier, uh, obviously. Um, so yeah, I mean, so what are you going to do for the next? Um, few years, Brian, just continue to tell everyone the sky is falling. And- I'm going to keep warning people. And I, I've been warning people in, in, in December of 2020, I released a 10,000 word report that said interest rates are, are in danger of rising over the next few years. And if so, this will accelerate the debt crisis. And I wrote 10,000 words on this in, a couple of years ago. And by the way, I was la- laughed at and mocked on Twitter by all the economists, all the think tankers, mm-hmm. They all called me an idiot and said, interest rates will never rise. They've been low forever. And that's why we can keep borrowing. And a couple of years later, interest rates are up. I'm going to keep warning people. And no one's going to listen. But I'm going to keep warning people. I'm going to keep, I mean, I testify before Congress on this regularly. I work with candidates. I work with lawmakers. This is not going to end well for us, but it won't be because some of us aren't 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 trying to get the word out uh, about about mm. this. Yeah, yeah, uh, but I mean, some people are listening here, right? I mean, you've had you've had op eds, you know, pretty recently in CNN and the New York uh, Times, right? So there's- yeah, the Washington Post, right? I mean, I think yeah. there are people. There is an audience for it. I also think, you know, some of the publications like to publish it because it drives it drives traffic and comments from people threatening to murder me. <laughs> Man, we love our we love our seniors. What can we what can we do? We love we love our old people. Um, yeah, well, I mean it's it's bleak. I mean, is there anything, you know, people can do besides the obvious, you know, follow you on Twitter and write their congressman? Is there you know, is there any kind of sort of political strategy or advice you'd give people, maybe people who are yeah, involved I mean, in politics? Yeah, I mean first, I mean again, if you know, follow Brian underscore Riedel on Twitter and I my Manhattan Institute page has my writing. I think it's more be cognizant of every time there's a new debate about new tax cuts, new spending hikes that we're broke. And yeah. I think the the less people you can help by not constantly pressuring your lawmakers to do the next round of tax hikes and the next round of spending cuts because you know essentially they're just following the voters right now and voters want government to be Santa Claus. And so I think the more you can on a daily basis make clear that you're not expecting Santa Claus here, the less painful it's going to be in the long term. Yeah, yeah, and these these sort of these budget fights where Republicans are trying to, you know, hold up the government. Are did, did you, how, how do you see the the sort of the these current sort of debt debt ceiling uh, negotiations? Because they are, are is there a faction in Congress? I mean, what are they doing? Are they just being political? They're they being political. But they're not serious. Uh, I, I'm, I, I'm I have very little patience for the people in the Freedom Caucus right now because if they were serious about spending and deficits. 
they would be focused on more than the 10% sliver of the budget that is non-defense discretionary spending. They would be talking about Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, defense, veterans. They found one 10% sliver of the budget. And even if they got every cut they wanted in that, it would lower the deficit 10 years from now from $3 trillion to $2.9 trillion. And mm-hmm. on top of that, a lot of these same lawmakers are, are pushing other policies to increase deficits at the same time. And so uh, it strikes me as a symbolic fight that's not particularly serious. Um, and I, I mean, I say that it's sad, I work with a lot of the Freedom Caucus individuals, but it, it seems more a public relations stunt than a serious attempt to make any real difference. Yeah. Okay. Well, you heard it here f- first, folks. Politicians are cynical and they don't know what they're doing, or they do know what they're doing and they don't care, and all they all they care about is getting elected. Okay, yeah, we, I think I think we know that, and yeah, hopefully, it's amazing this thing works at all. I mean, do, do you ever wonder, like, you know, how does anyone ever do anything? <laughs> Just, <laughs> I've, I've been I've been out, I've been in D.C. since two thousand and one, and every year I get a little more cynical. <laughs> I hate to say, I hate to put it that way. Yeah, but yeah, uh, it's it's tough. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's been fun, Brian. Uh, Yeah. People will follow you and hopefully at some point someone will, will listen. So thanks a lot for joining us.